nice to see you back. Welcome to Rising. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Robbie Suave, and this is Brianna Joy Gray. We don't introduce ourselves every day. I think they know who we are they, by now. We're a big family at this point. <laughs> that is certainly what it feels like. All right, let's get straight into the show. First off, New Atlanta Journal-Constitution polling shows President Biden trailing former President Trump in Georgia by a whopping eight points. Meanwhile, 19% of respondents say they hadn't decided yet between the two. Since the AJC's last polling just two months ago, Biden has dropped seven percentage points in the Peach State. ABC polling released last week finds just 33% of the country approves of Joe Biden's job performance thus far, a record low for his presidency and for any president in the last 15 years. Worse for Biden, just 28% of respondents said they believed he has the, quote, mental sharpness to serve another four years. Even rapper Meek Mill weighed in. He was flamed on Twitter yesterday for stating what many Americans are clearly already thinking. He wrote, Joe Biden is too old to be our president. Respectfully, WTF is going on in the American system that y'all are pushing this through like it's okay to trust what we're seeing. We're talking missiles, advanced technology, mental and physical warfare. That's not a lane for the older. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris made her case for another four years during a one-on-one -on -one with ABC News this week. Let's watch. Obviously can't change the president's age. So what is your plan to try and change this perception? How well, do you do that? I'll tell you the reality of it is, and I spent a lot of time with President Biden, be it in the Oval Office, in the Situation Room, and other places. He is extraordinarily smart. He has the ability to see around the corner in terms of what might be the challenges we face as a nation or globally. But it doesn't seem that that's getting out and resonating with Americans, with a lot of your supporters. How do you cut through that and make sure that they're seeing the Joe Biden that you were just describing? Well, I mean, listen, you've, you're here with me in South Carolina. You saw every room we went in, the numbers of people who are there applauding quite loudly. And they're applauding for me and they're applauding for Joe Biden. What's incredible is that the answer to that question, how you get voters to see a different side of Joe Biden or more of Joe Biden or your perspective on Joe Biden, would be to have a Democratic primary. If for the last you know, eight months, Joe Biden had been on debate stages, doing town halls, interacting with the public, and having to distinguish himself and his views from the other candidates in the field the same way Republicans have been doing, then we'd have some sense of the man and perhaps a different perspective on his stamina and his ability to lead. But Democrats have put themselves in a situation where they not only shut down a primary, they changed the debate schedule, didn't put Joe Biden on the ballot in New Hampshire trying to disqualify the state altogether, and are now are looking around confused as to why voters have no idea who this guy is and are easily persuaded by the worst version of him that obviously the conservative media is going to put out there. They really did seem to make their own bet on this one. Yeah, it would sharpen him. It would help him to participate. The same is true for Donald Trump, obviously, yes. who has refused to do any of the debates. I think, frankly, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have gotten better every time they've had yes. to do it. Um, and and the, their last debate, where it was just the two of them I'm arguing uh, with some of the most substantive criticism of, of each other and actually, frankly, of Donald Trump, which they need to do. So there's no reason not to participate. And it's just, a, again, another strategic blunder on Democrats' part that they have not subject, uh, subjected him to this process at a time where their voters are clearly 
um, saying they're at least interested in exploring alternatives. Then if you give them alternatives and they say, no, we're actually sticking with Joe Biden, well, then at least you've run that experiment. But why you would not do that when poll after poll shows him down nationally and shows him down in the key swing states, including Georgia. So now he's eight points down in Georgia, a state that famous that in the 2020 election flipped red to blue. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 2022 midterms, the and then immediately following the election, the um, the both Senate seats mm -hmm. flipped blue be, uh, during that those special elections that were held there. In 2022, one of those seats was successfully held and defended by Democrats. This was becoming a a, a state that, even to the extent it was interested in Republicans, it was specifically interested in non-Trump Republicans. Its governor, Brian Kemp, Republican governor, had his standoff with Trump over the election, stuck to principles, was attempted to be forced out by Trump, didn't happen. It remains very popular, but otherwise um, becoming a Democratic state, a blue state. And now you see that voters that Biden's eight points down in that state, a state he needs to win. He needs to win it. He needs yeah. to win Arizona. He needs to win either Pennsylvania or Michigan, something like that. These are all places where voters are, are showing signs of fatigue with the Biden administration. Yeah, and I, I will note that in some ways this is not surprising. I remember listening to interviews with um, uh, election workers, uh, door knockers, people who were working to turn folks out for the Democratic Party in the wake of 2020. And what they clearly said is that we used all of our political capital on this race. Joe Biden told us that we needed Georgia. Joe Biden told us that we needed Georgia to win the Senate. And we came through and we sold his promises. We talked about stimulus checks. We talked about student debt cancellation. We talked about specifically Biden's promise to cancel all HBCU debt. Uh, Georgia is a hub for uh, three major HBCUs. And we don't have anything left. If he betrays these promises, we cannot in good faith convince people to go, come out for him because it was such a reach in the first instance. Biden in 2020 was a candidate that was an alternative to Trump, not an entity in and of itself that people were enthusiastic about. And now I do think that Voter, uh, that the Democratic Party should not take lightly that the organizations, the voter groups, people like Black Voters Matter and the like, who did so much of the work on the ground to make sure that people turn out to the polls, simply either are not going to have that same interest in doing so or are just not going to have the same ability to say, hey, this guy is going to make your life better because now he has to defend his record over the last three years. They seem, uh, they being the Democratic Party, seems confident that, well, Trump's going to be the nominee. He'll be front and center again, and uh, and and that will remind and we'll just remind voters of how racist and sexist and anti-immigrant he is. And what you 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 want? This is what you want? You want fascism? No, you don't. You're going to vote for Joe Biden. That seems to be their strategy. And I think I, and, and, and at a time where actually like cable, as we've commented on yesterday, cable news has like stopped even showing things. They think Trump the the things that Trump says are so beyond the sure. pale they can't even show them to viewers, <laughs> which is right. going to actually complicate making that case. If you're too afraid to actually show people what Donald Trump has to say for himself, that's actually going to protect him from criticism. It's the most backward-thinking strategy ever. Of course, it's the one embraced by CNN and MSNBC, but that's a little bit of a digression, but it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I also think that there has to be an acknowledgement that these are not kind of superficial whims. The voters in Georgia who work so hard for voter turnout, they're not people who are saying, well, Joe Biden is old, therefore I'm not interested in him anymore. They're people who have been substantively disappointed by Biden renewing nagging on his own agenda. 
Democrats are hoping that people will simply forget about a lot of these agenda items, and some of them they very may well. If this were just a standoff between whether abortion rights versus mm -hmm. student debt were going to win, I'd say Biden has a solid chance of convincing people that the former is more important than the betrayal on the latter. But Gaza has really thrown an unforeseen monkey wrench into the machinery here. And when you look at states like Michigan, with their large Arab populations, and you look at the thousands and thousands of voters who are saying, not only am I not going to vote for Biden today, he is now irredeemable in my eyes because this is not an abstraction. This is not about my financial security. This is a, something like student debt, for example, or the, the PRO Act not passing or the $15 minimum wage not passing. This is about the fact that people I know and love on the other side of the world have been killed and are never coming back. That's not something you forget about. And his indifference to the real hurt and pain of his base, 80% of Democrats want there to be a ceasefire, and him acting as though those people are, frankly, terrorists for wanting uh, that outcome in a foreign policy context is, I think, really going to hurt him. Mm. More rising right after this. All right, Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, today I want to ask a pretty difficult question. Is Israel intentionally killing its own hostages? This pro provocative claim, which has been circulating since shortly after the Hamas attack on October 7th, has been newly corroborated by Israeli media. Under a policy known as the Hannibal Directive, soldiers are allegedly directed to do whatever it takes to prevent hostage-taking, up to and including killing the hostages themselves. A new investigation by Ynet, a major Israeli news outlet, has reported that at midnight on October 7th, the IDF instructed its soldiers to stop, quote, at all costs, any attempt by Hamas to return to Gaza, echoing language, according to Ynet, used when describing the original Hannibal Directive. According to Ynet, the actual meaning of the order is that the main goal is to stop the retreat of the activists, even if this means risking or harming the lives of civilians in the area, including the abductees themselves. Ynet confirmed that on October 7th, 70 cars were hit by Israeli tanks or anti-tank missiles or helicopters, and that at least in some cases, everyone in the vehicle was killed. Now, if you're wondering why a civilized nation would kill its own people in this way, the thinking, the logic, is as follows. If IDF soldiers are never captured, they can't be used as leverage in prisoner exchanges. According to the Times of Israel, quote, the directive allows soldiers to use potentially massive amounts of force to prevent a soldier from falling into the hands of the enemy. This includes the possibility of endangering the life of the soldier in question in order to prevent his capture. Here's University of Chicago political scientist and international relations scholar John Mearsheimer, who you might remember as an early critic of American foreign policy in Ukraine, explaining this doctrine. It's quite clear that on yes. October 7th, a good number, we don't know what the number is, but a good number of the Israelis who were killed were not killed by Hamas, they were killed by the IDF. And I find that hardly surprising, given the nature of the fight that was taking place. It is hard to discriminate in those situations. Now, the Hannibal Doctrine is a very different matter. The argument there, or the claim there, is that what the Israelis do uh, is that if it looks like an Israeli soldier, or even an Israeli citizen, is going to be captured by Hamas, or some other terrorist uh, group uh, 
to use the Israelis' language to describe those groups, then the uh, uh, the IDF will kill those Israelis. Now, interest in the Hannibal Doctrine has peaked this week following the release of a Hamas video featuring Israeli hostage Noah Argamani on January 15th. In the video, Argamani explains that two of the other hostages she was captured with were killed by Israeli soldiers. One died after Israeli bombs struck a house in which they were housed, she says. Another was bombed while being transported in an ambulance. Now, certainly the video of hostages recorded while in captivity should be taken with an ample grain of salt. To be clear, Israel has denied that it killed the two dead hostages. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari said on Monday that the IDF, quote, did not know their real-time location. We do not strike in places where we know there may be hostages. However, he added that, quote, in hindsight, we know we struck a target near the to the location where they were being held. We are investigating the event and its circumstances, examining the images distributed by Hamas alongside additional information. Now, that Israel was striking near the hostages, in hindsight, is in and of itself a troubling admission, especially in light of the fact that Israel has a track record of denying responsibility for crimes like the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla for months, only admitting full fault after rounds of pressure after successive half-admissions that inched closer and closer to the truth, and after public attention has waned. First, Israel claimed Abu Akla was shot by Palestinian fighters, then they discounted evidence and witness claims, then they drew out their own investigation while barring external inquiries. That an admission that Israel struck near the hostages could follow that pattern. Note that Daniel Hagari was the official who ultimately offered up the delayed apology for the death of Shireen Abu Akla. Now, to be clear, nothing can be certain at this time. But after Israel shot three shirtless Israeli hostages as they waved a white flag last month, investigation into whether Israel is killing its own hostages as a matter of policy is surely warranted. So let's look at the evidence. Israel has, in fact, adopted the Hannibal Doctrine as official policy in the past. The Times of Israel reported that the IDF had officially adopted the Hannibal Protocol as recently as 2016 and reported that it had been used by the IDF for, quote, decades as a method to thwart what Israel describes as uneven prisoner exchanges between Israel and Hamas. There's also a pattern of behavior by the IDF since the start of the siege of Gaza that suggests at least that hostage safety has been deprioritized. On December 12th, the IDF acknowledged an immense and complex quality of, quote, friendly fire occurred on October 7th, as reported by Ynet. Ynet also reported that the frequency of fire at the thousands of terrorists was enormous at the start, and only at a certain point did the pilots begin to slow their attacks and carefully choose the targets. Moreover, Israeli outlet Haaretz reported that a police source admitted that, quote, an IDF combat helicopter that arrived to the scene and fired at terrorists there apparently also hit some festival participants. These reports are corroborated by a video released by the IDF two months ago showing its soldiers seeming to fire indiscriminately on October 7th. <laughs> אני מקבל אותך. מצוין, קבל. אתה אוכל בהם? כן, אוכל.
Now, why does this matter? Firstly, it's important to remember that the nature of Hamas's attack, not just the number of civilian deaths, was used to justify the disproportionality of Israel's response. Over 24,000 Gazans have now been killed, 70% of whom are women and children. As it became clear that Israel's bombardment of Gaza would claim many more lives than were tragically taken on October 7th, a rhetorical shift emerged, emphasizing the nature of the barbaric crimes Hamas committed on October 7th, rather than the volume of deaths. The Intercept tracked the use of words like slaughter, massacre, and horrific, and found that they were reserved almost exclusively for Israelis who were killed by Palestinians, rather than the other way around. The 15-9-11s metric that was uh, going around was supplemented and then replaced by accusations of beheadings, rapes, and people burned alive, as the Gaza death toll dwarfed Israel's own. Biden, too, echoed Israeli officials as he evoked rape, beheadings, bodies burned alive <clears throat> as justification for his unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. Again, I'd argue that this rhetoric served a purpose, obscuring the disproportionality of Israel's response, which largely was borne by Gaza's civilian population. And of course, it didn't matter if these claims were true. As we've discussed at length on this show, the beheaded baby story was debunked, and there are no rape victims that have been as of yet identified. In fact, Haaretz reported earlier this month that, quote, police are having difficulty locating victims of sexual assault from the Hamas attack or people who witnessed such attacks and decided to appeal to the public to encourage those who have information on the matter to come forward and give testimony. Even in the few cases in which the organization collected testimony about sexual offenses committed on October 7th, it failed to connect the acts with the victims who were harmed by them, end quote. At least 200 of the badly burned bodies, which were cited as evidence of Hamas's brutality on October 7th, turned out to be Hamas fighters who had been burned beyond recognition by Israeli artillery. artillery. Here's Israeli advisor to Netanyahu, Mark Regev, admitting as much in a now viral clip. We had the number at 1,400 casualties, and now we've revised that down to 1,200 because we understood that we had overestimated, we, we made a mistake. There are actually bodies that were so badly burnt we thought they were ours. In the end, apparently, they were uh, Hamas terrorists. What we're, what we're, uh, when we make a mistake, your, we admit it. Short but before this admission, those deaths were used as evidence of Hamas's brutality and tacit justification for Israel's brutality against the civilians of Gaza. Efforts to investigate what happened to those tragically charged, vict charred victims, excuse me, have been thwarted by Israel's choice to bury the bodies and the vehicles together. Now, Jewish burial rites, which favor a speedy burial within 24 hours, were offered as an explanation for quite literally burying the evidence. The Jerusalem Post even reported that the cars may be shredded before being buried in order to maximize space efficiency by compacting the existing vehicles. But the choice to bury the cars was reported more than six weeks after October 7th, meaning that the Jewish custom of burying a loved one within 24 hours had long been made moot. Similarly, independent efforts to investigate rape claims have been thwarted by Israel. For example, in the wake of Israel's defense at The Hague genocide trials, in which it emphasized mutilation, rape, and torture, 
The U.N. Secretary General has again called for an investigation into these sexual assault claims. But Israel has ordered its health ministry not to cooperate, calling the U.N. committee anti-Semitic. Israel has also declined to make a tape that it has put together of October 7th atrocities available to the wider public, choosing instead to hold screenings for ideologically aligned parties. One of the few, or perhaps the only, non-Zionists invited to these screenings, Owen Jones, reported that the movie contained horrible atrocities, but that it did not show any evidence of rape. What are we to make of the gap between Israel's claims and its interest in investigating those alleged atrocities? And does this pattern of non-disclosure raise a rebuttable presumption that the Hannibal Doctrine is likely to be in effect? A final note, despite representing itself as a free speech platform, efforts to click on Ynet's reporting on the Hannibal Directive story brings up a warning that the article may be, quote, spammy or unsafe. To be clear, Ynet is described as a major Israeli newspaper that, according to a write-up by New York Times journalist Nathan po Nathaniel Popper at Forward Magazine, avoids any overt political position. Yet Musk, for some reason, is deterring people from viewing it. This is soft censorship, and I think it's worth asking what you're being deterred from reading. So people have been talking about this for some time, and it's caused folks like Max Blumenthal, who's been doing a lot of the in-depth reporting into what really happened on October 7th, to be very stigmatized and to get a lot of pretty forceful pushback. And so it was big news when a major Israeli paper seemed to corroborate—not seemed to, but explicitly corroborated—claims that this is not just accidental uh, killings in the fog of war, as John Mearsheimer explained, but seemingly a policy to prevent Israel from being in the position of having to negotiate the release of thousands of Palestinians who are imprisoned in Israel um, before October 7th and now in exchange for uh, their own Israeli hostages. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be very wary of false claims on both sides, because I know, in terms of the helicopter bombing, I don't know if that was that same footage, but there was a viral, um, seen by like 30 million people, clip of a helicopter blowing up supposedly people at the music festival. It turned out that was unrelated to the music festival. It wasn't depicting that. Um, you know, you're assigning a lot of blame here to the Israeli forces in their efforts to root out the terrorist group that have kidnapped all of these people. And again, the primary people at fault, obviously, are, are Hamas itself. Hamas could, should never have done this and should release all the hostages. Do I think Israel should take greater precautions, obviously, than they took in that case where they, they um, inadvertently killed those three people who were hostages trying to escaping? Um, of course. How, how was it inadvertent? Did, did an IDF soldier did not, not point a gun and purposefully kill those three hostages? Inadvertent in that they, they did not mean to kill their own hostages. They how did do, not want to how kill do you, their hostages. How do, I mean, this is the issue, Robbie. I think after particularly that instance, when you had three ho three hostages who had written words in Hebrew on a sheet uh, as, from where they crawled out from, mm -hmm. who are speaking and shouting in Hebrew, who are waving a white flag, who've stripped themselves down so there can be no suspicion that they have weapons on them. One of them, a, a curly red-headed guy. I mean, there were a lot of 
indications that these people were Israeli and not Palestinian. Again, not that it should have mattered. It's Innocent, a, weaponless, surrendering Palestinians should also not be gunned down in that way. But when something like that happens, and there was a choice to shoot at them and kill them anyway, does that not raise any concerns about what Israeli policy might be with respect to its own hostages? I just said it raises concerns. But when you're going, when you're on the ground, going door to door in enemy territory, fearing attacks from uh, the terrorist group at all times, you have a little bit of a hair trigger. Well, that's not to excuse it. There should absolutely be an investigation of what went wrong there, because the, the protection of, of the hostage lives is the most important thing. Uh, but we now have had uh, reporting. There was a first-person account from a former—from um, uh, a hostage, um, Agam Goldstein Almog, in the Free Press, describing the horrific conditions from her view. This is someone, right, who's not saying it on camera while, the, while Hamas has a gun to her head, saying that, um, that people uh, had—hostages uh, have wounds that were not treated and that, that girls were sexually molested by the terrorists um, frequently. That's a first-person account of what's going on. Um, look, but I— But not—she not, doesn't say she was molested. So it's not a—it's not a— I mean, it's She's a first-person account of what's going on, but not a first-person were... account of what has happened okay. to her. So you can reject that if you like? I'm not rejecting it, but that's very similar to the evidence that we've had so far. It's, it does not strike you as curious that, again, it's not that there couldn't be very plausibly an, exp um, an allegation of discrete sexual violence. Sexual violence is ubiquitous in this world. But what's been alleged is that there was widespread and systemic sexual violence. And despite this allegation that there was widespread and systemic sexual violence, the Israeli police have had to put out a bulletin saying, please, somebody come forward with testimony or evidence, because we're having trouble connecting these allegations that are made by a handful of witnesses that, as we heard in the um, segment that we did with Max Blumenthal, have been largely discredited as unreliable narrators, attesting to what they witnessed. You people, viewers can decide for themselves well, it's whether also, it's discrediting. Well, there's, 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 there's forensic evidence that is not lining up with the stories that are being alleged. So I understand not taking the word of any given journalist or interlocutor at face value. But there are reports of where bodies were collected from, the age of the victims, and where they were found. I've, and when you and have, I've seen the footage, by the way. I've watched, I watched the uh, October 7th footage. You see... Um, uh, you, there's horrific video of the of the murders being committed. A a a, a father um, blown apart in front of his two boys. Um, a, a, a grenade thrown into an a area where people are hiding so that they run out and then that they all yeah, get shot. People gunned down in their cars. People. The conditions of the of the people at the music festival. Bodies everywhere. Um, body that's that's in, what in Owen Jones attested conditions. to. He yes. attested to that, but that these claims of rape were not validated by the video. Yeah. So that's it the, that's it, the it question. It doesn't matter to me, but— Well, that's fine. But many of us are interested in finding out the truth of what happened and not just focusing on those facts that happen to paint Israel in a more positive light. There is no question, there is no public dispute that atrocities were committed on October 7th by Hamas, that they killed civilians in con a contradiction of my own morals and of uh, international law. But isn't it equally important to find out, especially given that the world is deeply invested in the hostages that are still being kept by Hamas and getting free, and to finding out if Israel actually shares the Biden administration's stated objectives of freeing the hostages, or if they feel like the cost to Israel and having to release Palestinian prisoners, who, I got to say, since you raised the conditions of Israeli prisoners, 
The statements that have come out of released prisoners in Israel is that, yes, they don't have enough food and their wounds are not treated because people in Gaza don't have enough food and their wounds have not been treated. What they repeatedly and consistently say is that we ate what Hamas ate and we got the care that Hamas received. They were treated equally as Hamas and to the extent that the conditions were bad, it's because Israel is denying aid and food to Gaza. That is not in dispute. By contrast, Israel does not have that same excuse with respect to how they treat their prisoners. And I cut this down for length, but there is ample reporting of sexual violence against Palestinians that has been corroborated by international authorities, including against Palestinian children. And those claims are not being weaponized in the same way to justify the October 7th attacks on Israel. I think that's fantastic to uncredibly accept all of those accusations while rejecting out of hand what people are are saying that they witnessed. It's it's a question of whether or not it's it's been investigated. It's a question of shifting the blame for what's happening to Israel instead of the terrorist group that took the people hostage. We can critique what Israel's doing all we want. We do plenty of that. But like 92% of the blame here for, for, for people being, uh, I mean, 100% of the blame for people being murdered in their, in, their, um, in their cars and at bus stops and at a music festival and then being abducted and captured and the conditions they're in and them dying still, that's, that's, on, that's 92% on Hamas. But that's and not, we can, that, that, it's not about shifting so, blame. Well, well, but the reality we is that- We spent all our time sitting I, around saying- But Robbie, if I ever bring up the fact that 24,000 24,000 Palestinians have been killed in three months. Then the response to that is, well, that's Hamas's fault. Everything comes back to Hamas's fault, in fact, in the blame shifting, and not the fact that Israel has been engaging in an occupation for 75 years, that the people who originally populated Gaza are people who were driven from their land and the Nakba, that Israeli officials are on record repeatedly saying they want this to be a new Nakba and articulating plans to ethnically cleanse the remaining population of Gaza to surrounding states, that they have announced a a strategy of collective punishment, which is a violation of international law. And now, I'm not even talking about Gaza. I'm literally trying to advocate for for Israeli hostages that an Israeli major newspaper is arguing are being purposefully killed strategically by their own government. And you're still framing that as me somehow advocating for Hamas. This is literally a segment about how horribly Israeli hostages are being treated in this scenario by their own government. The three who escaped who were shot by IDF, you think they were purposefully killed? I think they were purposefully killed, yes. I mean, obviously, a gun was aimed at them and they you were think, purposefully okay, killed. You, you think the, the IDF soldiers who ra- shot bullet. in their brain said, this is a fleeing hostage, this is an Israeli hostage who's, who's coming and I should kill them? I think that's the question in dispute. And there is a lot of evidence that I presented okay, I in this. I don't believe that at all. So when, when the Times of Israel reports that the Hannibal Directive was stated Israeli policy as recently as 2016, why is it so incredible to you that it would continue to be policy or be reintroduced as policy in the wake of the, um, you know, earth-shattering events of October 7th? Um, and again, you can say this policy is wrong and they ought to value the hostage's life even above eliminating a terrorist threat. But if there is, for instance, if they were—and again, the Israeli government has denied that they're doing this, but I, I read the reporting as well. If, the, if uh, terrorists and hostages are together— um, according to this directive, it would be that right. They shouldn't not kill the, the, the killing the the hostage dying as well is an acceptable outcome. Not that 
Mm. Not that fleeing hostages should be killed on but, purpose. But no, Rabbi, that's not right. And right. that's I, why. I think that's, but that's why included, to believe but that's, that that's why, Israeli government policy. That's why it is. It literally, quite literally, explicitly was Israeli government policy, and that's why I included that Mearsheimer quote. Because what Mearsheimer describes is the first scenario. Again, that's wait a minute. Let me finish this. Let me finish this. Mearsheimer describes the first scenario, which is, oh, okay, in the, in the fog of war, you don't know exactly where people are. You're willing to take the risk of right. bombing a place, even though a, a, a hostage might be there. But he says that is different. Go back and listen to the clip. That is different from the Hannibal Directive, which purposefully tries to eliminate hostages that are being held by your enemy so that you are never in the position where you have to negotiate a hostage exchange but these hostages and weren't, they had escaped they were fleeing toward the forces all right people can make up their own uh, minds about this more rising right after these messages Iran has claimed responsibility for a series of airstrikes into Iraq, Pakistan, and northern Syria this week that they claim targeted a, quote, Israeli spy headquarters and targets linked to the extremist Islamic State. Pakistan has recalled its ambassador to Tehran and warned that Iran could face serious consequences. Islamabad described the strikes as an unprovoked violation of its airspace and claims two children were killed. Iran's foreign minister sat down with CNBC from Davos to deliver a sobering message to President Biden. And keep the promises that they have made to us. The second thing I would like to say is that the United States should not, Mr. Biden should not, tied their destiny to the fate of Netanyahu. The full-scale cooperation of Biden and the White House with thugs like Netanyahu in Israel is the root of insecurity in the region. President Biden should immediately abandon his full support for this genocide of the Palestinians and the killing of more than 13,500 Palestinian children. Netanyahu has reached the end of the tunnel and no medical equipment and no oxygen capsule can revive or save Netanyahu. But throughout history, resistance against the occupation has always been legitimate. We benefit from the peace and security in the region. The security of the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf and international waters is in our interest. Stop the war in Gaza and allow peace to be restored in our region. Meanwhile, American diplomats have sent a, quote, private message to their counterparts in Yemen after the U.S. and U.K. bombed portions of the country to stop the Houthi-led blockade of weapons and shipments from entering Israel. The Houthis launched a series of counterstrikes this week, including one that hit a U.S.-owned vessel. They vowed further retaliation. Joining us now to weigh in on the state of things in the region is host of Daniel Davis' Deep Dive, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Welcome back to Rising. Hi, thanks for having me back. Always love to be here. We love to have you. Help us understand the posture here of what's going on. Obviously, different sides are representing differences of responsibility and whether or not the strikes that have been conducted are legitimate, both morally and under international law. What's your read? Well, I, I tell you, this this is a very alarming state of affairs that exists right now and something we need to be paying a lot of attention to because the whole Middle East now is like a powder keg which could explode. And and I, what you're seeing here is, is the process of the fact that we don't have a good strategy for the region because we, we want to basically try to have everything. You're, you're basically, you want your cake and eat it too. We want a peaceful Middle East, but we want to be able to go and, and launch strikes anytime we want. We want to be able to let Israel do whatever they want to do and not say anything differently, but we don't want other people in the region to be mad. And the end result is you're basically going to have nothing that you want. You don't have peace and you don't have 
a situation where the, the Israelis are, are happy or moving towards peace or any of those kinds of things. When we started having American troops that were attacked in Syria and Iraq, uh, you know, we had these so-called strong messages that we wanted to send a message to Iran and to these groups. And of course, the message was laughed at because they're little pinprick attacks. And these people are ready for combat, as we should see here. Now we're trying to do the same thing in the Red Sea. Then, you know, with Houthis in there, now we're, you know, assassinating people in Baghdad uh, as, as long as well as Israel. And it's just causing this powder cake to go higher. And here's the alarming thing. You see that Iran is losing their fear of the United States because they're openly taking credit for some of these things. And now in that clip you just showed with the foreign minister basically lecturing us, I mean, they wouldn't have done that in the past because they had been afraid of the response. But right now, they're not afraid of the response. And you have the U.S. constantly saying at every keep level, the promises that we they don't have want made. an escalation. We don't want an escalation. But they're willing to do these little things because they want them to work, but they're not going to work because Iran can handle that. These these real groups can handle that kind of stuff, and it just emboldens them to go more. And the the danger is that finally you get it like these guys like Jack Keane, uh, like Lindsey Graham, who were saying wipe you know a lot of these things in Iran off the map. That that Biden maybe goes in too heavy, and then we find ourselves in a war. And this is a very very dangerous time for us right now. Absolutely. And we don't want to see larger conflict in the region, although I, I guess some people, as you sort of just pointed out, might say, well, if, you know, if these pinpricks don't work, if Iran doesn't fear us, they need to be made to fear us, not with some kind of open conflict with, more, with, you know, with what Lindsey Graham wants to do. But are we required then to respond to the Houthis in a more who have actually attacked at this point U.S. ships? Um, so we have some uh, ability to uh, to even you know constitutionally speaking to re to respond. Um, do we need to make some kind of show of force to to put the region back in line? Yeah, that's that's exactly what Jack Keane says. He he said on Fox, I believe it was just yesterday, that we need to go in there with a strong show of force and to hit you know strong targets within Iran to show them what we're talking about. But we don't want a war. So he also wants his cake and eat it too. But here's the thing. We're in a horrible situation now because of years of a bad policy and years of, of doing things the wrong way. So right now, Robbie, there's no easy answer for this. There's no like, all right, if I was suddenly in charge, I'd tell Biden to do this and then everything would be OK. This is a case right now to where it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And we have to do everything necessary to make sure this does not expand and explode into a war which could be catastrophic for our interests. So. What I would suggest is that we need to start using a lot more diplomacy, and that means with Iran, with the Houthis, with Israel, and saying, all right, look, there's no going to be more blank check to do whatever you want because we have our own interests to worry about. And if necessary, we may have to go heavier than we have militarily if, if and only if American military or personnel interests are directly attacked. And I'm talking about, you know, like the United States military not just a, a U.S. flagged ship, because that is not enough, according to the U.S. Constitution and the 1973 War Powers Act, be, to take military action. And on that point, I would like to say any exp, exp, exemption, exp, expansion of military force must go through Congress first. We have to follow our laws so that everybody knows what's at stake. Jack Keane, President Biden, they can't just say, yeah, let's launch some missiles, which could spawn a war for us. This must go through the people 
and the Congress. Now, Iran's foreign minister, who we saw in that clip a little bit ago, really pointed to the idea that this is all stemming from the uh, ongoing siege of Gaza, that people around the world, but particularly in the Arab world, are horrified by what they see as a disproportionate response to October 7th. Of course, the Houthi blockade is premised on the idea that they're blockading ships in order to discourage Israel from continuing its siege on Gaza, saying they'll let ships through that have nothing to do with Israel, and that the blockade would stop if the siege stopped. That does suggest a kind of diplomatic solution will ultimately be the solution here. But as you pointed out, and as that Iranian official pointed out, it seems to be one that um, the United States and Joe Biden in particular is roundly willing to ignore. To that point, last night, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, put forward a resolution to encourage uh, st the State Department to report on any human rights violations by Israel during its military campaign. That vote failed 11 to 72. Just 11 uh, senators were willing to vote for the mere threshold of an investigation into whether or not Israel is committing any kind of uh, violations of international law in the regions. Uh, what does that vote portend to you? Well, I, I tell you, look, we're at a point now where we're just going to have to decide what is important to us. Is it important to keep the the basically the facade and the and the way things have always been and the way that just the reflexive pro-Israel everything has always been, uh, or do we want to recognize actually reality? Because I'm telling you, a lot of people won't want to hear this, but the fact is, we're going to have to start telling Israel no more blank check there are going to be some strings to this because our interests are now being harmed. And let me tell you why and how. Because all these countries all over the world, not the least of which is uh, South Africa, and many countries are in the agreement with them, like uh, you know some of the global South. Lot, I'm talking scores of countries are recognizing this. So this whole thing about us constantly just being the only voice in the United Nations or the UNSC, that vetoes things while the whole rest of the world is in another side is giving emboldened to Iran to take actions like this, to the Houthis to take actions like this because they see it's no longer all the world against them, but now it's increasingly part of the world against us because they don't like what's going on with the uh, Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip. And so if we want to change that dynamic, we're going to have to do something we don't want to do, and that is to tell Israel, you're going to have to cool the jets. Because if we don't, if we keep going on the path we are, these things are going to continue on and we may come to a place where we're forced into either escalating into a war or backing down and being seen as losing diplomatically, both of which are bad outcomes for America. But that's where we're headed if we don't make some tough choices on our own. Mm. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Matt, thanks for having me, Rob. college campuses feel more like an icy lake these days, with one wrong step leading to total disaster. Both students and faculty have felt the chill in the air, anti-free speech students and staff perfectly willing to launch campus pogroms against perceived uh, dissenters. But with the rise of DEI initiatives formally codified into many college admissions and staff selection processes, these issues have become even worse. As Greg Lukianoff writes, universities use DEI statements to enforce groupthink and remove ideological diversity from campus. Most frighteningly, Lukianoff and his co-author on his new book, Ricky Schlott, detail a supposed gauntlet of DEI and ideological purity tests that weed out anyone but the most devout believers at each step 
of the process. But some are concerned that campuses are weaponizing safetyism, safety concerns, or academic critiques as an excuse to remove politically inconvenient actors from schools. Harvard's Claudine Gay was touted as being anti-free speech, even though she was only in the position for less than a year, far more likely than arguments of academic integrity or free speech issues. In fact, it was likely that her refusal to say that she would censor anti-Israel speech was the reason she got the boot. Here to discuss further is Greg Lukianoff, author of a piece in Reason, uh, my magazine about these issues, and president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and author of the new book, The Canceling of the American Mind. Thank you so much for being on, Greg. I think I noted everything I wanted to note there. Um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we want to talk about uh, DEI on college campuses and threats to free speech, which is the subject of the piece you wrote and, and has a lot to do with your book. Um, this is something that a lot of people on the right are talking about um, these days, and I think getting some pushback from others about, well, is it really a problem? Is it really threatening free speech? Why don't you give us an overview of you know, what, what do you mean by DEI, what is actually going on, and where does it intersect with uh, censorship? Sure. Um, so I, I've been doing this for 22 years, to almost, actually almost 23 years now. And the biggest threat to free speech on, on college campuses has been the bureaucracy on campus, has been the administrators, uh, which is one of the reasons why kids are paying so much to go to these schools uh, these days, by the way. So they should be angry enough about that. Uh, DEI administrators are just a subset of the administrators who create problems, um, and, but they've only been calling themselves DEI administrators for a relatively short period of time. And in that time, we've seen some of the worst threats to academic freedom I'm aware of. Um, so for, uh, to give one very, the, the biggest example that's going on right now, uh, at FIRE, my organization, we, de we defeated the Stop Woke Act that came out of the DeSantis administration, um, which, which targeted uh, actually in some cases teaching uh, ideas related to DEI. Um, and that was a threat from the right. But a far, and we defeated it in court so far, it's on appeal. Uh, but a far worse threat that we've seen, which gets virtually no coverage, which is outrageous, is in the California Community College System, where professors, doesn't matter if you're chemistry or physics, are actually required to work in DEI concepts, everything from intersectionality to anti-racism, into their classrooms, even if they teach science, for example. This is unbelievably unconstitutional, but it doesn't get nearly enough attention. You know, one interesting aspect of this is that Bill Ackman, who, of course, led the fight against Claudine Gay, criticized what he believed to be some kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion style framing. Um, there was a lot of argument—there uh, were many arguments that Claudine Gay was not qualified for her position, obviously, with the plagiarism scandal, et cetera. But when the script was flipped and Bill Ackman's wife was accused of plagiarism, he felt very differently about whether or not that disqualified you for certain kinds of jobs. And more pointedly, he has been arguing that Jewish people need to be included within Harvard's DEI framework, seemingly because he sees, as you're describing, some benefit in being able to weaponize those policies in advancement of his own political views, which are very much pro-Israel. Is that the kind of thing that you're, you're talking about here? Well, I'm saying that we need to massively de-bureaucratize higher education if we want it to be less expensive. And the idea of just adding Jewish students to the DEI structure is foolishness. Hmm. Do you, what are some other examples of how DEI is interfering in students' rights on campus? Can you talk to us about DEI um, statements, something that I know uh, of many oh, faculty yeah. in surveys um, say that they're concerned about? What, what is that? 
So I got pretty badly depressed writing Canceling of the American Mind, <laughs> looking at all the different threats to free speech and academic freedom, both on and off campus, but particularly on campus. And and if you factor in, you know, the low level of viewpoint diversity that you have in higher ed today, that's already a problem. But this whole article that I wrote for for reason, it's just that, that's based on a chapter in the book that Ricky and I wrote. It's just conformity inducing pressure after conformity inducing pressure after conformity inducing pressure. When you already have, I think it's what, 3% of professors at Harvard self-describing as, as, as conservative and, you know, smaller numbers at some schools, virtually none in some departments. To add on top of that something that is a political political litmus test, which which DAI statements can uh, obviously are, but also at the same time, we did an experiment to prove that they are, uh, which, which we talk about in the book. Um, it just seems insane. So FIRE actually came out with a proposed law um, several months ago uh, opposing uh, McCarthyite uh, political litmus tests, basically saying, like, if you had an essay saying patriotism, you know, like, give your thoughts on patriotism, that would be a political litmus test. And just the same way DEI statements are as well. But the idea that these same administrators looked at the environment on campus in the past few years and said to themselves, you know what, there's too much independence of thought on campus, we need some additional political litmus test is just completely nuts. I want to talk specifically about uh, some of the the proliferation of uh, anti-speech um, uh, efforts on university campuses that has happened in the last few months. It's worth noting that the University of Pennsylvania professor McGill, who was ousted after those congressional Senate hearings about anti-Semitism on campus, of course, that was in the beginning of the campaign against her. Uh, her first uh, real challenge happened over organizing this Palestine Rights Literature Festival, which uh, yep. Jewish students objected to and the Jewish community objected to uh, because it included uh, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who they characterize as being anti-Semitic. I would push back against those characterizations, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, and of course, uh, there were, was a screening of a documentary, Critical of Israel, yeah. that was banned at the University of Pennsylvania. At Brandeis University, a pro-Palestinian group was barred for statements made by its national chapter. We've seen a lot of these pro-Palestinian groups banned uh, across campuses entirely in the wake of October 7th. Um, and on, at a University of Vermont, a Palestinian poet was set to deliver a talk. This is from the New York Times. But the school pulled the meeting space after students complained that he was anti-Semitic. We've seen uh, writers, uh, speakers that were planned to speak at the 92nd Street Y pulled. We've seen a number of professors um, threatened with their livelihood. Obviously, Bill Ackman, again, um, supported releasing lists of all of the students that were members of groups, even if they personally didn't sign objectionable statements. Uh, and join ranks with other very powerful billionaires like the Sweet Green billionaire to say, release these lists to make sure that these people are never hired after they graduate. And, and I'm struggling. I, 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 take your, I take your critique of DEI and how it can be mm -hmm. weaponized in these various ways, but I'm struggling to see how all of these kinds of events, which seem to me a really significant problem on college campuses right now, are connected to the DEI framing we've offered here. The... Um, it, that's why I opened up talking about administrators when it comes to, and by the way, pretty much all of the cases you've mentioned are fire cases. We, we've written almost three dozen letters on behalf of, of students um, for, for their, what they said, or, or and professors for that matter, on the on the Palestine Hamas war. And it definitely is the case the pro-Palestinian speech is more likely to get you in trouble uh, uh, over the last uh, se several months uh, that, that we've seen. So I do think that the the way that the DEI, um, you know, administrators play into this, you know, oftentimes are, you know, sometimes the, uh, they are actually the ones making the decision to get the, to to get these students published or, or punished or the professors punished. 
Um, and so I, I do think that there's, it's been weird since DEI, you know, is perceived as being kind of like uh, overwhelmingly like on, on the left, there does tend to be sort of an instinct on the left to sort of defend it. But I think that in a lot of cases, the left unwittingly is putting itself in the defense of these institutions that actually perpetuate class privilege, that actually become increasingly expensive, don't really care about keeping costs down so students can attend, while at the same time uh, uh, clamping down on speech they don't like, which discredits them to everyone else. Yeah, what's interesting is I, I think actually the left critique of DEI, or I wouldn't frame it as DEI, I think it's much broader than that. I think it's a generalized weaponization of identity is a status quo preserving tool. And the left critique is that any kind of HR and DEI at these institutions is simply HR is in place to protect the company from lawsuits, not because it has any higher goal of um, changing the discourse or protecting student thought or anything like that. So to that extent, I agree with you. But it does seem that because DEI is the status quo preserving mechanism, that it is not, in fact, a left mechanism at all, to your point. Mm -hmm. And that what we see at these colleges like Harvard University is that ultimately Claudine Gay was not some free speech hero or some advocate on behalf of Palestinian students. She simply tried to toe a line that was a little bit contrary to what the kind of billionaire donor class at Harvard University wanted. And because they threatened to withdraw money, she lost support of the board and ultimately was fired. I see that not as a function of DEI, whatever the criticisms of it are, but of moneyed interest using their power at these institutions to advance a very specific ideology. And these moneyed interests, by the way, would probably describe themselves as liberal in a generalized sense, but they're liberals who are also very much uh, Zionist as opposed to a kind of more moderated take that uh, Claudine Gay was offering here. I, I mean, I'm actually really relieved to hear you say that because I, one thing that I find absolutely mind blowing, uh, like in, in the treatment of of Harvard uh, in the media in the past couple months, is this big defense of it as if they're not defending one of the biggest, richest mega corporations with sixty billion dollars to one side that perpetuates class privilege. But also, to the extent to which it wants to maintain the status quo, it is also trying to maintain its ideological status quo, which is very much, in my opinion, a upper class uh, sort of uh, view of the world that actually tells people at Harvard that they are the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest um, and that they're more moral than other people. Can you, uh, before we let you go, uh, FIRE, I, and I cite your organization all the time, it's a terrific, very principled free speech organization, ranks Harvard dead last on, on campuses they are and in free that. speech policies. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and, and some of the other, uh, MIT and, and Penn also ranking very lowly. Can you tell, uh, give us a little bit of the rationale, the criteria that your organization goes through when it determines that this is a school with terrible free speech policies? Oh, sure, sure. It's not just their policies, it's their practices as well. And to be clear, the, the, uh, our, our campus free speech ranking, before you send your kid to any school, be sure to consult our campus free speech ranking because it's the largest, it relies on the largest survey of student opinion on whether or not you can speak on a particular campus ever done. The four largest databases on professor cancellations, student cancellations, uh, speech code policies, and deplatforming. We take on both the left and the right um, in that, but Harvard really did earn its originally negative score. It was a negative 11 point something or 10.69. Um, that we rounded up to zero. Right behind it was Pennsylvania, was University of Pennsylvania, 
Um, and above that, by the way, University of South Carolina. So, so sometimes, like when it comes to the sort of uh, uh, sort of predictable ways of, of figuring out, you know, based on a partisan lens of how you think it would it would pan out, it doesn't it doesn't work out that way. So, for example, University of Virginia does really well. But most interestingly, not surprising to me, also getting back to sort of a class perspective, Michigan Technological University and in, in, in Michigan is actually the one that finished first. Uh, just out of curiosity, it, it's surprising to me, these results, given that, of course, institutions like BYU or Lincoln University, religious institutions that don't allow things like holding hands on campus, not being a Christian on campus, um, mm -hmm. really are really pretty restrictive. And of course, people make choices to go to that school. So I'm not criticizing the school itself, but they're obviously yeah. objectively much less free in terms of what you're able to say and do on campus than an institution like Harvard. How are those kinds of things factored in in a way that would not put one of those universities that literally limits your speech in very specific and stated ways lower than a place like Harvard University? And I guess my follow-up is, how much is your ranking based on students' subjective reports? Because it could be that students at Harvard or more keyed in to the idea that they should have certain speech rights and therefore are more critical of their university, so let's say, over their attitude to pro-Palestinian speech than students at a place like BYU might be. Schools that make it clear that they place other things above their uh, identity, um, the Christian schools, BYU, et cetera, we call warning schools. Um, and what the warning is, is don't go there if you want your free speech protected. These are schools that have made it pretty clear that, that you don't have uh, these rights there. Whereas private liberal arts colleges overwhelmingly have uh, promised freedom of speech and academic freedom to be protected, and we hold them to those promises. And while the idea that kind of like, oh, maybe it's just something different about Harvard, maybe they're just more aware of stuff, that doesn't explain why University of Chicago is 13th. That doesn't explain why UVA um, is in the top 10. What, one of the things that just has been true in my long career is that elite colleges are worse on freedom of speech. They are less tolerant, more group thinky, um, and they are the kind of schools that I no longer advise people to go to, um, with a couple of exceptions, including University of Chicago. Hmm. Okay, with the exception of University of Chicago, you're saying that's the one good elite school. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, there are other, I, 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 I thought University of Virginia is elite. Sure. All right. Brianna's a Harvard girl over here, so we're all. Uh, oh, I know. <laughs> I mean, I just. <laughs> but, I, just but, I, but I appreciate you seeing through the sort of class uh, class lens on it, because a lot of Harvard graduates can't even see that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I think the issue. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. University of Chicago has a reputation for being actually affirmative, very uh, affirmatively conservative, not in terms of political speech. I think this is a that's dis the, that, distinction. That's, that's just false. That that well, that, but, that does I, not come out in the polling. That does not that does not come out in the in the makeup of of, of their. Uh, if no, I could but just it's just it's not true, my Brianna. Thought. But you don't know what I'm saying yet. It's really hard to disagree no, but you're, with but someone. You're, but what you're, what, what you're doing is a very typical uh, tactic, which is like, oh, but those are, those guys are right-wingers when the evidence I, of I the didn't University say those Chicago words, right and I would really appreciate no, 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 it if you could allow me to finish. If you're not afraid of speech, ludicrous. I think you should allow me to finish my point before you object to it. Isn't that no, kind but, of the game okay. here? Um, Go on. Not in terms of generalized public political speech, what's going on in the world, those kinds of things, which I think is the focus of a lot of these conversations. And I think there's pretty much uniformity across colleges on those issues because most young people have a left-leaning political bent. That's just the reality of the world. However, I think what's much more important about at these colleges in particular, personally, is that at Harvard and University of Chicago and all of these institutions, what is taught in the hard sciences in um, law and business, which graduate most of the professional world uh, coming out of these colleges, have a very 
not socially conservative, but substantively economically conservative worldview. So when you're talking about these institutions preserving elite class status, I think that's absolutely true. But that gets ignored because there's more of a focus on whether or not a given professor identifies as a Democrat or a liberal, as opposed to whether or not they teach a form of economics or a form of legal theory that is necessarily status quo preserving and preserving of our institutions, generally speaking, which is why you see so many Harvard grads in the Supreme Court, in government, and all behaving in concert with each other, regardless of whether or not they have a D or an R after their name. I'll give you a chance to respond. Uh, it was just a statement. I, what, what, what's the... What, you don't have to. Look, we appreciate you coming here and giving your view. Thank you so much. Have we learned nothing from the coronavirus pandemic? New reporting suggests Chinese laboratories just can't help themselves. According to the Daily Mail, Chinese scientists have reportedly developed a mutant coronavirus strain that attacks the brain and has a 100% kill rate in mice. Worse, they admit there's a risk it could spill over to humans. The virus is a modified version of a strain found in pangolins and was tested on mice, expressing a protein found in humans to test that the disease might impact people. Reportedly, all mice infected with the virus died between seven and eight days after being infected, with symptoms including their eyes turning completely white, rapid weight loss, and fatigue. Researchers additionally found significant viral load in the mice's brains, lungs, noses, eyes, and windpipes. While the potential for a new pandemic could be rising here at home, pandemic prevention measures have done a full 180. Oakland's new COVID policy is allowing even students who test positive for the coronavirus to attend classes. As long as the child is asymptomatic, they can go to school, though they are encouraged to wear a mask. Here to discuss the coronavirus and this potential new mystery disease out of China is Alina Chan, scientific advisor at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard and co-author of Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19. Welcome back to Rising, Alina. Thanks for having me. So if it is possible to uh, to calm us down to make our, us less fearful, please do so. But I, I know you'll be as honest and blunt as necessary. What is this? Is this study not somehow not as bad as it seems? What's going on? Yes, the, the wording in this study is a bit unfortunate because the pandemic virus, SARS-CoV-2, also causes 100% of humanized mice to, to die. So it, it's not clear based on this new letter, whether or not the, the pangolin virus is, is more concerning than the pandemic virus. But it is yet another example where the public is only learning about risky virus research once it, once it is done, once it's done and published. That's when the public finds out. So if people don't, don't get to find out before the work is done. There is apparently no consultation. And what this means is that if these viruses had not been published, and if they unfortunately leaked from a lab, there would be no way for the public to tell if this was from nature or if it came from a lab, if it had been genetically enhanced. So th this is a real concern for, for the world. What do we know about the safety protocol in effect at the lab where this study was done? As I understand it, a big part of the negligence with respect to COVID-19 was that the kind of equipment being used at the lab was insufficient for the uh, virality of the, um, the virus that was being created. So just to clarify, this this wasn't the Wuhan lab. This was a separate lab in a different part of China. Uh, but typically, these types of viruses had been handled at pretty low biosafety, at BSL-2. So at this level, there's almost no tracking 
of lab escapes. So if you had been infected by a virus like SARS-CoV-2 that has only mild symptoms, there's no way you would have caught that and traced it back to the lab and had an investigation. So uh, this, this letter that came out about the pangolin virus actually did not state at what level of biosafety the experiments were done. So it could have been low, it could have been high, there's no way to tell. So I, I think this is yet another reminder that we can't let scientists self-regulate on these sort of experiments, you know, because the, the benefits are unclear of the study, but the risks are real. So the risk could impact billions of people around the world. So a scientist might act on a dangerous idea at inappropriate biosafety, and unfortunately, billions of people pay the price. So this is yet another reminder that we, we can't just let scientists do whatever they want. And uh, as a reminder for viewers, uh, the difference uh, in the kind of lab safety protocols between the U.S. and some labs in China what has actually been revealed to be uh, a, a, a selling uh, has been a selling point for doing the research. Um, you know, we, we've covered on the show from U.S. Right to Know doing this reporting, showing that some of the one of the grants um, that uh, that EcoHealth Alliance was trying to get, you know, specifically. Was per, was persuading the the oversight officials that it would be done, the research would be done in the U.S. But there's that note where they're saying, but once we get it approved, we can actually do it in China, where there's less to worry about in, in terms of oversight. Yes. So the the jump in cost is 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 very dramatic between a low biosafety level to a higher biosafety level. It can mean millions of dollars of difference, and and also in personnel training. So for Unfortunately, a lot of research programs nowadays are trying to do as much as possible with as little money as possible. So sometimes this means that biosafety costs are cut. So people make estimates of how risky is this work? Can I get away with doing it at a bios lower biosafety level? And I think that after the pandemic happened, clearly this is no longer acceptable. I think most virologists even would look at this and think, no, we, we can't be cutting costs on biosafety. Yeah, most, most virologists and probably like I, I haven't taken a poll, but I bet 80, 90 percent of people read a headline like this, uh, that, that this experiment was done, and say, what? We're still doing this kind of thing? And, and we're not doing it under the, you know, the, it'd be one thing to do it in Antarctica or on the moon or something, but we're just, we're doing this in the, the same kind of, uh, potentially at least, the same kind of circumstances. Yes, that's right. So these labs, no matter what the biosafety level is, they tend to be located right smack in the middle of a city. So if a scientist unfortunately gets exposed to a virus, gets infected, he doesn't even know that they've been infected, they walk out to like the nearest Starbucks or something, and boom, like the whole city is infected within like a month or two, right? So this this could have been what happened in Wuhan in 2019. Unfortunately, is that working with these viruses with unknown pandemic potential, you don't know what symptoms they cause, you don't work with them at the highest biosafety level, and there's no way to track incidents of exposure. And someone just walks out in the middle of the city and boom, you know, all the hospitals, the local market, the train stations, they're just covered in virus. So I, I think that we we can't keep having coming back to this conversation every time there's a new concerning paper. There should be more proactive action being taken to to increase oversight globally on this type of research. Can you speak to what kind of oversight mechanisms are possible here? The article references Chinese scientists. Are they Chinese scientists under the auspices of the Chinese government? Are they American-affiliated scientists in a lab uh, the way we had with the last pandemic? And what are the implications with respect to oversight if it's one or the other? So currently, I think that the norm is that each institute decides for themselves really what, what, is, what is appropriate or not. 
and they also self-govern their own biosafety levels. So there, there's some responsibility to tell the funders, so people who give them money to do this work, what the safety level is. But at the end of the day, there's no mechanism to enforce, like handing over all your lab records and biosafety incident records should an accident happen. So I would say that, unfortunately, it, it is kind of like the Wild West. So this is what some of the top research funding agency leaders in the UK and US said that it, it is like the Wild West. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what biosafety level at which this work is happening. You only find out later when there might have been a potential mishap. Hmm. Lena Chan, thank you so much for joining us. I remain very fearful, but we appreciate your expertise. Forum or the World Elite Forum, over 300 set elites from around the globe, meeting right now in Davos this week for the World Economic Forum. Who's on the list? Well, some of the attendees include U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who's already pleading for more money to fund the war against Russia. NATO Chief Stoltenberg is hinting that he plans on ramping up weapons provisions to Ukraine, saying that this, this is the way to peace. Is that if we want that to happen, a peaceful just end to this war, the way to get there are more or is more weapons to, uh, to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So the more credible we are in our military support, the more likely it is that the diplomats will succeed. Solenberg tweeted yesterday, Great to start the day in Davos by meeting President Zelensky. Despite a serious battlefield situation, there is cause for optimism. Ukraine retains its independence. Ukrainians have rejected Russia and chosen the West, and Ukraine is closer to NATO than ever before. Forum founder Klaus Schwab also made some remarks at the meeting. Let's hear some of what he had to say. Those deeply transformative challenges which are actually the cornerstone of our program, lead to uncertainty, generalized fear, and pessimism. They force us into a mode of short-term crisis management at the detriment of long-term strategic and sustainable solutions. This reactionary approach undermines our collective faith in the future. And here we losing the faith of our future. We risk to become much more ego-centered and on a, on a national and individual level. To break this cycle, we need a paradigm shift. We must rebuild trust, and that's actually the theme of our meeting. We have to rebuild trust, trust in our future, trust in our capacity to overcome challenges, and most importantly, trust in each other. So we covered Zelensky being at the World Economic Forum um, yesterday. Um, 
I thought that was something to react to Stoltenberg saying the path to peace is more weapons for Ukraine because that's the best way for diplomacy to take hold. Obviously, as we've discussed, there was a path to diplomacy very early on in the conflict, and instead um, we continued to, um, by some reports, actually scuttled those discussions. Um, the U.S. and the U.K. did, and then continued to send um, weapons to Ukraine. Um, this whole, like, Ukraine remains free is still Ukraine. That's something to celebrate. Look, of course, I don't want Russia to take over Ukraine. And in fact, Russia's goal is not to subjugate um, the entire country, but to um, uh, claim this Russian-speaking um, territory. And this idea that if we only give them another round of weapons is going to make some is, is going to lead to some diplomatic breakthrough, um, I think is not is not plausible. Is not something anyone is believing at this point, but is still the top item agenda at this elites forum. Yeah, in some ways, uh, the speaker gave the game away when they described uh, it as a victory that Ukraine has become um, closer to the West and to NATO and the IMF over time. Ultimately, that is what this proxy battle is about in the eyes of many who have a more of a um, uh, 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 global economic order worldview of what's been happening here, whether or not Ukraine was going to come further under the influence of Western monetary policy and the kind of, dare I say, a kind of um, coercive or even neo-colonial way of controlling other countries and keeping them within our orbit through um, these international monetary organizations, as opposed to adopting a more uh, Eastern-looking Russian focus here. And it seems like the victory in the eyes of these folks is whether or not NATO remains Western aligned, regardless of whether or not that's substantively in the interest of the people of, NATO, uh, of Ukraine, or whether they would have democratically voted for that kind of a trajectory. And so there, it is, there's something very telling about that speech when they say, well, however many hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are dead, they started recruiting old men and women to the uh, army. They're facing uh, the hardest part of the winter right now, with funds having dried up for the United States of America, and they're in no better bargaining position than they were a month after the war. But hey, the elites can still claim a victory, because at the end of the day, their system of economic dominance remains intact. Yeah. And look, if, mo if most—if a substantial portion of Ukraine—like, there's nothing— States themselves are not sacred. If there's a substantial portion of Ukraine and its government that wants to be more Western-focused, wants to be more NATO, European Union-aligned, and that's what they want, then they should have that—they absolutely have that right. They should have that right to self-determination. And if there's part of the country—again, these are arbitrary lines that got redrawn a hundred times—and there's part of the country that wants to be Eastern-focused, is Russian-speaking, is Russian culturally, and wants to be with Russia—there's this, this, nothing, again, sacred about the literal boundaries of the country. That, that seems like— a better outcome for everyone. No one should be forced to right. share a political space a with unless, people they unless you're one to of do these so. major parties, whether you're yeah. the United States or whether you're Russia, and your view is that you're losing ground and you're losing members of your coalition by allowing some portion of the world to actually engage in self-determination. I mean, we're seeing these kind of battles all over the world. We see it with um, the people of Mali finally ousting these remnants of French colonialism. You see it in the taxes that Haiti is still forced to pay in, in reparations to France of, of all weird, twisted dynamics. You see that the way that the West maintains control in the world is sometimes often militaristic, but it also is through these mechanisms of uh, financial control. And when those don't work, we see the spillover effects into 
wars like the ones we have in Ukraine that are so far attenuated in terms of how we've been managing it as outsiders from what the interests of Ukrainians are, that it's honestly is very uh, sad to watch. Because at this point, they have been dragged into, a middle, dragged into a middle of a battle, which is very difficult for them to extricate themselves from without feeling like they've lost so much and gained so little in return. But that is a scenario that they are in precisely because the West, United States and UK scuttled negotiations in the month after the conflict emerged. And even before that, because the West courted and dangled the carrot of NATO membership, which was a known provocation for um, for Russia, and did so anyway, because their, or arguably their long-term right. financial objectives were more important than whether or not a country was literally split apart by war. And dangling it and then not giving it turned out to be the worst of both worlds, because if they had actually just properly made Ukraine a part of NATO, then, I mean, the, the deterrent theory is that Russia would not have attacked, or, I mean, that would have caused World War III. Um, but, but having them in this middle ground where we're saying it could maybe happen, uh, but we're not actually—NATO is not actually obligated to defend Ukraine, allowed Russia to then f if, uh, attack it without uh, provoking the level of reprisals of the U.S. military government—the U.S. military actually intervening rather than um, just sending um, aid. So. Some of the members at the meeting have called for a new world era, I believe. Let's watch some of that. That order seems to no, no, uh, not be uh, the order anymore. We are on the way to a new order, so we are between orders. Now, I think of this a little bit more about a transition of eras rather than a transition of orders, but the two are kind of cousins of one another. The reason I draw the distinction is because I don't think the international order built after 1945 is getting replaced wholesale with some new order. Um, it will obviously evolve as it, as it has evolved multiple times over the decades since 1945. But I do think in a, in a more sharp and distinctive way, we are moving into a new era. And that's what I talked about in my remarks, that we are, you know, the post-Cold War era has come to a close. We're at the start of something new. We have the capacity to shape what that looks like. And at the heart of it will be many of the core principles and core institutions of the existing order. Commentator Luke Rudkowski wrote on X, oh, the Davos Bilderberg members want to create a new world order. Where have I heard that before? Obviously, you know, referring to the, what, what has been labeled a conspiracy, the new world order conspiracy theory, um, which is a conspiracy theory, but we do, year after year, see these elites, these the people who run governments, getting together to, um, to decide on vast foreign policy and economic matters, and the, the concern being, does this erode our—you know, is this actually democratic? And then at the same time saying democracy is the most important thing, but when you have elites getting together to plan society, is that actually democratic? And, all, and is it also a threat to free speech? So we're not talking about this specifically today, because I, I am planning to do a radar on it tomorrow, so you can, viewers can hold me <laughs> accountable since I'm um, announcing it ahead of time. I try never to do that. But about specifically the speech implications, there are so many—they did this last year. Last year, um, Brian Stelter moderated a panel on mis the threat of misinformation. This year, the World Economic Forum ranked misinformation as the number one global threat above mm -hmm. warfare and climate change and every and pandemics and everything else misinformation and then they they were having a, a panel on it this year I'm going to talk about that tomorrow but again just this 
yes, of course, the spread of false information can be a concerning thing. But when they have it in their, they have it in their head that it's misinformation, or so many people do, to just disagree with them or disagree with what their consensus is. And so many times we've seen uh, whether it's whether it's RussiaGate or whether it's foreign policy or whether it's. COVID-related stuff, um, later the, the, the truth is more complicated than what the narrative held to begin with. And, and, and a, a lot of people who are obsessed with the misinformation topic really want, especially in Europe, want to empower um, new European speech bureaucrats to, um, to be able to police that and, are, and look to the U.S. as this kind of outlier because of the First Amendment and say, yeah, you guys have to figure out that First Amendment. It stops you from censoring all this bad speech. That's really a shame. Yeah. Well, people will have to return tomorrow to tune in for that radar, which Robbie has absolutely promised to write <laughs> and cannot renege on. <laughs> all right. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, as I've, I've promised, this uh, radar. So we'll have that and lots more news and some good interviews. And we hope you tune in. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>